Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There was a time collectors would scoop up native arts and crafts and then sell them at boutique galleries for many times the original sale price. Things have improved since then, but what if native artists benefited from the increasing value throughout their lives? That's a concept getting some attention in Canada and could be a model for adequate compensation for artists going forward. We'll look at ways native artists are protecting the value of their work, coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. When a powerful storm damaged homes, boats, and subsistence resources in Alaska in September, the Federal Emergency Management Agency decided to translate information about assistance into two indigenous languages spoken in the region. But as Emily Schwing reports, those translations were useless to Alaska Native people. Gary Holton spent 20 years documenting Alaska Native languages at the University of Alaska Fairbanks Alaska Native Language Center. He says what FEMA thought were translations have nothing to do with disaster recovery. That is an amazing understatement. Um, the only thing you might gather from that is there are a couple of dates, but you wouldn't know what those dates are for. Yeah, I would say the only useful bit of information in there might be if there's a reference to a website or something. FEMA paid a California-based translation service company, Accent on Languages, nearly $30,000 to translate information about how to apply for disaster assistance into both the central Yupik dialect and Inupiaq. At least six different documents that were supposed to be translated were actually just a mishmash of phrases and lines, lifted directly out of a more than 80-year-old book of indigenous folklore and language spoken in Far East Russia. Taris Sweeney served as the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs under the Trump administration. Her great-grandfather created the Inupiaq alphabet. It's a problem for... Uh, underrepresented minority communities, if this is the type of information that's being disseminated and people can't even understand it, services to uh, American citizens are being denied, especially in time of need. That is egregious. These documents were supposed to offer information on how to apply for financial assistance to people whose homes were damaged and who lost subsistence fishing and hunting equipment as well as the foods they'd been storing for winter. Sweeney says the documents are insulting. There's a lot of that historical trauma of being beaten in schools uh, because uh, they were speaking, you know, their indigenous language, uh, which is why there's a generation of us uh, in Alaska that, that struggle with fluency. After the agency discovered the mistake, FEMA removed the mistranslated documents from its website. The agency also hired an Alaska-based company to continue the work. To date, FEMA has paid an average of $8,000 per applicant to people whose applications for disaster relief were approved. To put that into perspective, 
The agency paid the original translation service, California-based accent on languages, more than three times that amount. In Bethel, I'm Emily Schwing. The remains of a Yakima Nation woman who went missing nearly 40 years ago have been identified. King 5 News reports. Daisy May Heath was 29 when she went missing in the late 1980s. Her remains were found in 2008 near White Swan, Washington. A private DNA laboratory recently used advanced testing to identify the remains. The county coroner says her death remains undetermined. Lakota actor Mo Brings Plenty is among presenters for the 80th annual Golden Globes, taking place in Los Angeles Tuesday night. Brings Plenty is well known for his self-titled role in the television series Yellowstone. The awards recognize excellence in film and television. The ceremony airs live on NBC and streaming on Peacock. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A historical master trauma class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 24, 2023 at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There are so many talented Native artists, but having artistic talent doesn't always coincide with business savvy. There's also a long history of unscrupulous art dealers and collectors taking advantage of Native artists. Even now, many Native artists and craftspeople have difficulty finding the ideal price point for their work relative to its market. Some Canadian decision makers are looking into legislation that would pay out royalties to artists whenever their work is resold. Such a law would mean artists and their heirs would benefit from the work rather than just galleries and collectors. Today on our show, we'll speak with artists and experts on how to protect the value of Native artwork, how Native artists are increasingly taking control over their own collections and sales, and we want to hear from you too. If you're an artist, what tips can you share to protect your artwork's value? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 or you can post on our social media. Our handle is 180099NATIVE. Joining us first today in Eastern Ontario is Dawn Setford. She is the president and founder of Indigenous Arts Collective of Canada. She is Mohawk. Dawn, welcome and feel free to further introduce yourself. Hi, Sego, Sego, Dawn Yangya, Mary Frances. Um, my family calls me Yestuzlanutka. She keeps the feathers. Uh, I'm a Mohawk of Akwesasne, um, and I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I'm the founder of the Indigenous Arts Collective of Canada and the owner at Past the Feather, my, my private um, location. And uh, 
Thank you for having me. Don, we really appreciate you joining us today and kicking off our conversation. This proposed artist rights resale law, it sounds like legislation that could really benefit artists in Canada financially, but it also seems like it might be challenging to implement. How exactly will it allow artists to be compensated when their work is resold? Right. So, so everything Indigenous seems really hard to implement, right? Um, and, and that's kind of, I, I come from the artist perspective, so I haven't had a, a hand or a conversation in some of this new legislation that we're discussing, um, but it's well overdue, obviously. Um, you know, other countries have, have put things into place, um, but Canada's really lagging behind on that. And, and I think, you know, the work of people like uh, Theresi and, and um, other advocates and people in the Senate, it, it, we're finally making a little bit of movement. But, you know, while, while gallery owners, um, you know, are selling an item for thousands of dollars, I mean, some of our artists are working at a rate of one to two dollars an hour. Um, but they're excited, you see, and, and that's the that's the I guess the the human perspective of this is that artists are so incredibly excited and flattered to think that a gallery would be interested in their work. And I mean, I really always felt that this is just a chronic um, feeling that many cultures who um, are marginalized go through life feeling that, that that's an honor, and, and, it, and it is an honor. But when we look at this from a perspective of, of Canadian economics, it's such an epic failure, um, you know, that these girls are girls. I'm sorry. I always say girls because mm-hmm. the majority of the membership that I support is Indigenous women, so forgive me for, for not being inclusive there. Um, but, the, the you know, the artists I support, support are are working so very hard and just um selling at these prices in order to sell and um you know especially you know the enough artist who's going to create something for um a gallery maybe gets you know uh, i don't even know what what it is but maybe an eighth of a price and then someone else comes in and buys that item for thousands of dollars. Right, um, right. And John, I'm sorry, I want to ask because th- that story, you know, an artist working really hard, you described uh, some folks earning when it, when it breaks down to like one to two dollars an hour for the time and effort that it goes into producing a piece. And then they sell it to a dealer or a gallery who marks it up this huge astronomical hike, a thousand percent, two thousand percent, and it's been going on for so long. Anybody who's been involved in Indian art over the years, uh, I see it here in the Southwest. You have it up there in Canada, like you described. But I, I wonder, like now, especially with the internet and with eBay, like how is this still going on? Because it just seems like it would be easier than ever now for native artists to to sell this stuff themselves online, go directly to collectors or buyers, and, and be able to bypass some of these unscrupulous middle people who are just exploiting mercilessly like this is, is, I mean, how, how, how are we still in this situation all these years later? Sure. And it, it is a real, real important question, but I'm really, I really aim from a perspective of the person in front of me. So um, I guess I'm coming from, you know, 
the person at the kitchen table um, who is creating something that is going to be so embraced by non-Indigenous um, consumers and resellers. And so that, to me, is the barrier because we're all doing things privately. We, we, we are not meant to be um, the business people. We do this directly from our spirituality and directly creating happiness for us. So I think that the, the bridge needs to be built, and, and this is the work I've always tried to do, is make sure that there's some sort of bridge between where they are at their kitchen table and where that product is going to end up being. And I mean, it even, it even begins on the powwow trail where the tourists come and they see beaded earrings for $20 and they're gone. They take them, um, they buy them up. And so as a realist, I'm looking at where, where is the bridge between the kitchen table and the gallery in, for example, Montreal, which which is well known for its galleries that are selling ten and twenty thousand and two hundred thousand dollar pieces from an artist who literally made this at their table and probably got five hundred dollars. Right. Yeah, and, it's just shocking. You know, it really is. And like I said, and, and, today, and I understand what you're saying. That is, is a lot of. A lot of Native artists, they, they don't take this perspective of, oh, I'm out to make a, a maximum profit and I'm creating more from my heart and from right. my culture. But at the same time, you know, when you see the way some of these uh, these galleries and these collectors and other people, the way they leverage uh, and take advantage of that, take advantage of our generosity, take advantage of um, our culture in that way, and even like down here in Santa Fe, I see it sometimes. Even like you'll go to Indian Market and you'll see something selling right there uh, at a vendor's booth. And then you take 10 steps over into a gallery and a very similar piece will be yeah. selling with a huge markup. And it's just, they're just 10 feet away. Right, right. And, and, and it's, you're absolutely correct. But I mean, it's, it's consumerism, right? And so why is the end seller going to feel anything for that artist? If that end seller had to come to the kitchen table and we made them a tea and talk to them, things might look a little differently. But again, we're always coming back to that barrier between cultures in, in our countries, in both of our countries. You know, it's, it, there were differently, um, the whole humanism of this is, is, is lacking. And in this wave of what everyone's calling reconciliation, the only people that are working at it are us. And so, like, where are, where is this legislation and how is it going to reach everybody? And that's the question. So there's, there's workers like me and probably Teresi who, who sit and think, like, God, I'm working so hard and so long and I'm not getting paid either because I'm a volunteer. But who other than us are going to reach our communities? And, and if we're not being valued for reaching our communities, how are those artists going to even know that that legislation exists to help them? And I guess that's what I'm getting at is, is the government and, and Senate and everyone can do as much, you know, talking, but we're used to talking and we're not used to seeing anything happen. But if you give, you know, Susie a check for 10 grand, that's going to last her six months. I mean, she's going to have food on the table, and that's what people aren't seeing. The gallery could, you know, 
buy themselves a vacation. Well, if you pay the artist, then five kids are going to get fed. So I really feel like there's got to be also support for the people in between so that we can reach these artists that are suffering silently and, and not being connected into um, what will be their economic stability, really. And Don, at the heart of this also is just the demand for for native artwork and okay. over the years it, it's just continued to grow and, and there's more mm -hmm. interest and are you seeing uh, a lot more interest in canada for native art um i i don't know that i i can really speak to that i i think more pressing is the appropriation and and the theft of our designs, you know, and coming out of of Europe and Indonesia, and and I'll give you a real fast. I'll make it a fast example, but um, my organization was the first to have a Parliament Hill ceremony uh, for National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. The first one was 2021, um, and. In order to support that ceremony that supported survivors and their families, I decided to do some fundraising from my basement. And I know the orange shirt thing is, is hot. And last year it was outrageous, the amount of, and still now, the amount of orange shirt products that are coming out of Indonesia and, and you know, the billion-dollar market that they've created. But Again, long story short, you know. Don, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do me a favor. Just hold that thought. We do have to go to break, but I definitely want to allow you to finish this story uh, about this uh, market. So, folks, uh, we're talking about Native art and uh, how it's sold and how it's purchased. And if you want to join our show, uh, give us a call. We'll be right back. The federal government issued translations on official documents for Alaska Natives following destructive storms there. The trouble is, the text is indecipherable for those it was intended to help. We'll get insights into some missteps for Indigenous language translations coming up on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with artists and experts about protecting the value of their artwork. If you have tips or questions, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Do you know of any not notable artists who have never benefited from the true monetary value of their work? Or are you an artist who yourself, maybe you felt at some point you were taken advantage of by a gallery or a dealer? Uh, similar to what we've talked about on the show so far, we'd love to hear your story, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Also, if you've listened to our show, uh, if you had a chance last week to, to hear our show about Native Pro Wrestlers, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Here's feedback we received on our website from one interested listener named Don Arneach. The Eastern Band of Cherokee had a wrestler, Johnny Eagle. You can find old videos from the 90s of him wrestling in the Southeast. He was also the tribe's youngest fluent Cherokee speaker. He recently passed away just after Thanksgiving. He was part of a trio, NWA natives with attitude thanks for that comment don and for those of you that missed our show inside the ring native pro wrestling you can find a recording in the archives tab at nativeamericacalling.com 
Let's get back into our conversation regarding Native artists and their artwork. And we're speaking now with Dawn Setford. She's up in eastern Ontario. Dawn, before break, you were telling us a, a story uh, of how uh, Native artists can be exploited. Please continue. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I, I was just referring to the, the horrible um, appropriation of our designs and, and creating um, orange shirt, you know, billion dollar um, businesses. But, but that was leading into um, me fundraising for um, our first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation on Parliament Hill in Ottawa where I, you know, I'm kind of a one-woman show, and, and in my basement, orange shirts were coming out, and I, I created my own design. Um, I, I offered it. I sold it um, in order to raise funds for this event on Parliament Hill. Um, and, and to shorten this up a little bit, I, I actually fundraised so much money that the federal government decided that I need to start charging HST on these sales of fundraising products. So, so literally the, the Canada Revenue Agency is saying, well, you need to start charging all your customers HST uh, on products that are, are to help crimes, you know, to support victims of crimes against Indigenous people. Okay. And, to me, and Don, was, I'm sorry, could you, uh, HST, what does that stand for exactly? I'm so sorry. That's our 13% sales tax. So it's a, a provincial and federal tax combined. Okay. So I would be customers 13% and that would go straight back to uh, the provincial and federal government. Got it. So you know, the government, um, you know, is profiting off of crimes against Indigenous people. And, and the artists like me made nothing off of that design. But then we turn and see it on, you know, 10 other websites being sold um, for profit. And so this, this is the second most important thing that needs to be part of this discussion is we need to stop the import of, of fakes. We need to stop the import of, of these fake masks and, and things coming in. And it just seems like such a simple thing to do. I mean, we search for drugs coming across the border. We search for all these, you know natural products would but we don't search for the things that matter to the people mm -hmm. right to the to the economic um right. stability of the people okay. and so there's there's a lot yeah all right well don thank you for for sharing uh that personal anecdote there and uh and you really uh hit that point home and that there are multiple layers at work here. It's not just uh, with regard to some of these dealers and galleries, but also the imports that are coming in as well that are uh, impacting the market greatly. Let's move on to our next guest now. Joining us from Rankin Inlet, Nunavut in Canada is Teresi Tungalik. She is the Arts and Traditional Economy Advisor for Nunavut Government. She is a nook. Teresi, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Tracy, it's, it's great to have you on the air, and uh, tell us more about this proposed artist's rights resale law. We talked about it briefly earlier, but I'm interested in learning uh, how it's going to work and, and if it really has a chance of passing and becoming a law. Yes, um, the artist resale rights has been on the table for many years uh, with uh, the CARFAC, which is the Canadian artist representatives have been uh, presenting it to the federal government for several years to have it made law in Canada. 
And if it, if it did, if it does become law in Canada, what would happen is that through the art institutions such as art galleries, museums, and auction houses, if Inuit art or any Canadian art were to be resold through these institutions, then if it's sold for for a thousand or dollars for a thousand dollars or more, then the artist would get a royalty payment of five percent. So, for an example, let's say, um, you know, Matthew Nukingak is a very well-known artist in Nunavut, and so if one of his art pieces, either his jewelry or his carving, were to be resold to an art gallery, a museum, or to an auction house. And that piece sold for $150,000. Now, if the, uh, if the uh, artist's resale rights were law in Canada, then his royalty payment would be $7,000. So we're looking at legislating this, and it is basically for visual artists, because when you look at people who do music, they already get a royalty when they're when they have their music played or uh, reproduced, and same with uh, authors who write books. If they, you know, how they get um, royalty payments, but the visual artists in Canada are not receiving any royalties when when their artwork has been resold to art institutions. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting thing to consider, Therese, the, when you compare artwork, tangible artwork to to music in the way music is purchased, the way music is owned as compared to, to something that you hold, like a painting or a sculpture. And you mentioned uh, the artist, uh, Matthew Nukingak, and we actually have him on the show as well. So let's go ahead and chat with him. Uh, joining us from Iqaluit, Nunavut in Canada is Matthew Nukingak. He is a jewelry artist and sculptor. He is also a nook. Matthew, welcome to the show as well. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, I would. Oh, go ahead, Matthew, go ahead. please. Well, I just it was it was I interesting like to hear. To... <laughs> okay, please, Matthew, continue. I just would like to say a short thing about Teresi. You know, she has been supporting artists ever since I became an artist over 25 years ago. Before that, I even. So uh, I would like to thank her for, you know, supporting artists all these years and still continuing and making sure that the artists are, you know, treated right. And I would like to thank Teresa first before I start saying things about that. But then, I remember I was in a meeting years ago when I was starting also, I guess, about 25, 20 years ago, maybe. And uh, Carfax was talking about that back then, about the artist retail rights. And uh, it takes a while to get things happening. But it would be amazing to have that because I have traveled around the world, all over the world, of course, I check on the galleries or the museums, just because that's my that's my life. 
And, uh, you know, and then you, I see this art piece done by a person I know. And then realizing I have also seen that exact same piece in another institution, in another museum or the gallery. And, uh, you know, we know that Inuit art is uh, a kind of a, they treat it like an investment. And uh, so if it's an investment, you know, it's going to be going to many hands. And, um, you know, people will want it because they have that value, the retail value. And it gets higher and higher. And uh, so, uh, you know, seeing those pieces, my friend's artwork in a gallery and have been, have been able to have been seen in, in another gallery, you know, make me realize that this artist that is, had created that piece years ago, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a a retired person now, but artists don't get pension. So you'll be very good if the, you know, major galleries or major um, museums, they were pretty, um, you know, with with that resale value because they know that, you know, these pieces are very important. And um, so, uh, well, I remember, I heard that years ago. But, um, you know, it would be great if a person that did uh, the artwork years ago and still around, and, and is still around, and sometimes it happens with the kids, their kids also, but... Um, you know, really, just a little bit, and said five percent. So, if they can get that, some of that, you know, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, Matthew, absolutely. I mean, five percent could be huge, and like the example that Teresa gave earlier of a hundred and fifty thousand dollar piece, it'd be a, a seven thousand dollar uh royalty payment i mean that could just make a huge difference and really appreciate you coming on the air today matthew and sharing your experiences as, as a jewelry artist and a sculptor and let's go back to Teresi now and Teresi, tell us a little bit more about the art economy in nunavut it sounds like it's a a really really strong market yes it is but before i go ahead uh thank you matthew for your kind remarks, and I will give an example of an Inuk artist who has passed away. Her name was Ubilu Tunili, and she was from Cape Dorset, now known as King Knight. Um, She was a really, really well-known artist around the world, and when we were having a big meeting about the arts in Cape Dorset, when everybody else was complaining about how little the artist receives and how how much the galleries uh, make from them, she came to the podium and she spoke and she said, when I look at my work and I know how much I got for it at the, 
the first time I sold it. And then I realized how the galleries are selling it for such a big price. Uh, to me, it's really flattering to know that my artwork can sell at that price. Mm. But flattering is good. But if we take a step further and give 5% back, that would be even better. So, uh, yes, um, the Nunavut Arts and Craft is very it's a very strong economy in Nunavut because due to the fact that there are very limited um, job opportunities in many of the smaller communities, so many of the people who live in those smaller communities and in bigger communities too tend to make art to make extra money for themselves. So when I when at one point um, we looked at the statistics and at one point that one year uh, among in, uh, among Inuit Nunangat and Canada uh, the art world made eighty million dollars where fifty million dollars came from Nunavut. So when you look at Nunavut. The economy is strong, partly because of the artwork that is created. When when we look at how how we look at art, before it was just a part of our culture, before we became we turned to monetary uh, system. Uh, artwork used to be in types of uh, functional tools such as ivory combs and tools and things like that and also little toys made for little children and that, and also little gifts. But once we became, once money came to the north, it became a different story. Now Inuit were able to um, sell their artwork and turn get, get monetary exchange for the artwork that they did. And this, in a way, was a big change in our society where we became no longer nomadic people and we were set into settlements to live together rather than uh, family by family, living wherever you need or following the animal migrations for that year. Um, it did change a lot of our lives. It did also... Um, made one aware that, yes, this is another form of uh, artwork that they love and they love to produce and it's part of their culture. So that's why when you look at art, when you look at the um, carvings that were done in the 50s, they are absolutely different from what is being created now. The, the production of the art tells of its time as well, and not just a piece of art. It also brings you back to that time because the carvings that were done in the 50s look different. They look primitively sometimes, but they, and that was because due to the amount of um, 
hand tools they had. Mm-hmm. And as we became more modern and electrical tools came along and electrical sanders came along, the look of the art of the Inuit did change too. So you can see an evolution through time by looking at how the artwork was made. So, Teresi, I'm sorry, is, we, we are going to have to take another break here, but uh, really, really interesting conversation today, learning all about uh, the history of Nunavut art and uh, how it's impacted the local economy and culture. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join us. We're talking about protecting the value of Native artwork. Call in with your comments or questions, 1-800-996-2848. Before we introduce our next guest, I do want to share some examples of artists and uh, how some of these prices work out there in some of these markets. Inuk artist Kenoha Ashiva originally sold her now-famous Enchanted Owl artwork for $50 in the 1960s. In 2018, that artwork resold for a record $216,000, but her estate didn't get a cut. So think of that. If uh, this artist resale law goes into effect, that 5% uh, or 7% cut, that, uh, or 5%, excuse me, that royalty that could potentially go to uh, heirs in a situation like that. Also, more recently on Antiques Roadshow, an appraiser relayed the story of Paiute basket maker Carrie Bethel, who worked as a housekeeper. She sold one of her baskets in the 1920s for $180, which was a pretty large sum in those days. One of her baskets recently sold for more than $200,000 recently. So uh, huge, huge numbers we're talking about here. And let's go ahead and bring in our fourth guest today, joining us from Seattle, Washington, Colleen Echo Hawk. She is the CEO of 8th Generation. She is Pawnee and Athabaskan. Colleen, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be back with you guys today. Absolutely, Colleen. And just hearing, you know, these stories, it's it's heartbreaking uh, what some of these artists are being paid for their work. And earlier we heard Teresa use this analogy of comparing uh, music rights and how music is sold. And even every time a song is played, uh, that artist has to play the song or pay the songwriter and things like that, these royalties. And she compared that to artwork and how it's not the same. Is that a fair comparison to, to compare art and music like that? Or is it more apples and oranges? is fair. I think if, as we come into you know a reckoning of the real equity and fairness that we need to have in the Native art world, then I do think it is a fair comparison. But I think that um, it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. Um, there's just been so much um, cultural appropriation and you know big companies making a lot of money on Native art and design for a really long time now. 
Um, and until we come to that place of um, understanding and and valuing the artist and what they bring to our um, you know our communities and the broader communities, then um, it, it, I think it's going to take a little while for us to get there. But there's steps that we can be taking in between time. Now, Colleen, earlier I asked about with technology the way it is and, and artists being able to use platforms like eBay to connect directly with, with buyers all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how come we're not seeing more of that taking place uh, to prevent some of these issues? And so these artists are able to just go directly to, to buyers and, and be more adequately compensated for their hard work. You know, I, I don't know, honestly, if I'm the best person to answer that question. That's a big question. But um, and I just want to you know, acknowledge that there are other people out there who might have a better answer than I do. But I, I'll take a, 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 a try on it and to say that I think, again, when we look at the historical context of how, you know, people have just not not valued our artists, not valued the art that they um, that they're buying and then seeing a big um it, you know, really value in, in dollars. You talked about that Paiute basket. There was also one on the um, Antiques Roadshow where it was a, a Navajo blanket that was valued at over $500,000, right? And and it was not owned by the, that family. It was now owned by, you know, this this um, white guy. <laughs> and so how do we understand that in our in the community? How And I think a lot of it has to do with education, really educating um, people out there educating our consumers and helping them understand true native art and design. And I always am, I'm reminding people, you know, constantly in, in my work here at Eighth Generation, that that we need to remember that true American, na- uh, true American art and design is Native American art and design. And it's a shame that we don't see it everywhere in in our country. And um, you know, I I hope that our artists here at Eighth Generation. Um, and all the artists that we've been talking to today will be a part of, you know, changing that for the future. Colleen, this proposed artist rights resale law up in Canada, could something like that provide broader protections for Native artists in the U.S. as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we need to see these kind of laws come into practice and we need to see, um, you know, courageous policymakers, courageous artists out there who really, um, who really fight for that and and see some pretty incredible change happen. Mm -hmm. And and for the artists out there that are, that are working now, I know there are organizations or resources out there to help native artists uh, navigate some of these tricky markets and these, these business matters. And are you seeing a a, a lot of, uh, improvement there with regard to Native artists and just their grasp of the business side of what they're doing and um, able to just negotiate better prices for their work and, and, and just handle these these issues uh, a little bit more effectively? Uh, absolutely. You know, I am now the CEO of Eighth Generation, which was founded by a Native artist, Louis Gong. And that was part of his passion was to um, really see, you know, his art and other art artists um, be valued um, and, and, and to become entrepreneurial, to become um, the folks who are starting their own businesses. And, you know, we work with, you know, um, Sarah Agaton House out in Ojibwe country and with um, John Pepion and um, Blackfeet. And, and we see these, art, um, these artists who are, 
you know, have very successful businesses. And, you know, um, it's a beautiful model, and we're seeing um, just incredible amount of um, entrepreneurship and business acumen coming out um, from these Native artists. And I think the future looks really bright for them. I'm super excited to see, um, to see what happens in the future. Colleen, as Dawn pointed out earlier, there's other other factors at work here. Mm-hmm. One of the factors she shared was uh, the imports that are coming in and, mm-hmm. and you know, the knockoff yeah. uh, Native American artwork coming in from overseas. Yeah. And, um, what, what types of protections uh, would you like to see for Native artists that could mm-hmm. alleviate some of those challenges as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like that is very complicated because you see, you know, you have these kind of one-off brands who are, who are making these native art and design, you know, non-authentic native art and design. But what I would say is that we can hold the big brands accountable and we can also create policy to hold them accountable. You know, earlier this year, or last year, I, I spoke to a major brand here in the, the U.S. and um, they wanted to work with a, a native artist and they talked about how last year they had worked with an artist um, and they had, you know, taken this design and put it on all kinds of clothing. And it was, you know, beautiful. And I asked them, well, how much did you pay that, that artist for that design? And they said $500. And they made millions of dollars off of that, that, um, that one design because they put it on all kinds of products. And I think that's where we really need to do, like, further education and also hold those big businesses accountable for, um, you know, for actually and paying the artists and giving them royalties so that they can um, continue to do their artwork and continue to flourish in, in the art world. Colleen, I'm interested in hearing, so this example you just gave us, uh, this big brand paying $500 for design and they put on t-shirts, they make millions. When when they're called on that, when somebody like you or, or one of your colleagues calls them out and says, hey, what's going on here? You know, you just paid somebody a pittance yeah. and you made a fortune off it. What's, what's their response? Do they just say, hey, sorry, that's that's the way business works. Uh, that's just the way it goes. Or do they show any remorse or any concern at all? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I immediately said to them when we were chatting, I was like, listen, like, we will never, like, have one of our eighth generation artists, like, work in that manner. Like, we give our artists much uh, more upfront, and then we also give them royalties and we would you know demand that you do the same and they immediately backed off and that they apologized uh, kind of you know they're like yeah sorry that's not going to work but it wasn't to me a true apology like i would i want to feel i want them to feel remorse about what they are doing and so um, that particular brand, um, they did take a step back and they said, we're going to be reevaluating our practices because I told them what we do. I was like, yeah, that is just incredibly wrong what you're doing and you're harming um, our communities and harming this artist by not giving them, you know, royalties um, for all of these products that you make. Because they didn't, they did, they did like, you know, not just T-shirts, they did these beautiful like long sleeve shirts and they mm-hmm. put it on water bottles and they put it on bags and they made a lot of money off of it. So, um, there was not enough remorse, but again, I think we have a lot of work to do ahead of us around educating these major brands. Um, that's why diversity inclusion and, um, is important um, and really challenging them to uh, come come to grips with what, they, um, what they've done, what the cultural appropriation has done in our communities, and really um, pay our artists a living wage.
Now, going back, Colleen, to this uh, proposed artist resale rights law, and I suggested that it could be challenging because I'm thinking every time a piece of artwork is resold, uh, the artist or, or their heirs would receive this royalty. But it seems like that'd be really tough. I mean, it could be decades uh, in between sales and just how would they be able to keep track of all that information and enforce it and keep everybody in line? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you're absolutely right that it would be really hard and that it would be um, hard to keep track of things. But I, just, I think that it's the right kind of step, that if we don't make these sort of steps and challenge the systems that have been oppressing um, our artists and oppressing our communities, then we're not going to see change happen. And so um, I like, personally, I love having a big vision and a big dream and saying, this is accountability. This is where we should be at. And, you know, um, things are hard. There's a lot of hard things in this world, right? But we, but we, we find ways to deal with them and we find ways to um, make, make things right. And so I, I, I love the idea. I think um, it's bold and it's visionary and it shows a lot of courage. And I think that's the, that's the future. Now, some of it, too, it's interesting to think of the cultural context because we heard Teresi talk about that one artist that she knew who was flattered to find out that that her artwork was selling so much at the gallery and Teresa suggested, but, you know, look beyond that. Like, yeah, it's great to to know that your work is so sought after, but when somebody is profiting so much off of off of your hard work and your effort and um, so what can we do? Um, Colleen, because obviously, you know, we don't want to lose the integrity of what we do as Native people. We don't want to lose that passion. We don't want to just turn into a, a bunch of, you know, um, just money grubbing people out to, to just eke out every last dime of profit out of every piece we make. But at the same time, we, we need to, to protect our interests. And where, where as Native people do we, do we find that balance between being profitable and being good business people, but also yeah. being true to our craft and our culture and our artwork? Yeah, yeah I, I love that story. And I, you know, and I know people like that who are just like, wow, that's amazing. People like like my artwork and, and they also are, you know, in the native community, you know, we have very generous, generous people are, you know, I, I come from um, potlatch culture out in Alaska. It's like, you know, we're giving away everything and it's beautiful. And it's, and it, I think it's a, a, it should be a model for the non-native community to be looking at. Um, but we also have to recognize that there's, you know, we have a lot of, of hard things in our communities. We have, you know, people who don't have enough housing and we have, you know, um, areas where, where we want, um, our tribal governments are saying we, we want improvements. We want to see some, you know, uh, prosperity in our communities. And so I think it's a fine balance, and I think it's an individual experience as well. Some individuals are like, you know what, that's okay, and um, and I and I and I honor that in them. And then there's others who are like, you know what, I want to be really entrepreneurial, and I want to have business. I want this to be my business in my life, and that and we honor that as well. So. Um, it's one of those kind of both and <laughs> answers mm -hmm. um, because we honor the individual experience and their individual desire for what they want to do with that art. Well, Colleen, it sounds like Eighth Generation, your organization, ha has found a solution in that you pay Native artists a fair mm -hmm. price for their designs. And what does mm -hmm. it take to do that? And is that is can other organizations do that as as well? Could you scale that up? Oh, absolutely. You know, we hope that people look at what we've done here at Eighth Generation, and again, founded by Louis Gong and owned by the Snoqualmie tribe. We hope that other people really see this as a model that can be replicated because it is 
a beautiful model. It's so fun and cool. I've only been here a year, and getting to know how the business works has been really um, inspirational. You know, we work with artists from around the country. Um, we say to them, hey, um, would you like to, you know, make a blanket with us? We're really well known for our blankets. And um, they say yes or, or no. And then um, when they say yes, we say, okay, here's a here's an upfront fee about of, of what we're going to give you. Rank can range, uh, has different um, ranges depending on the product. And then we um, give them a royalty. So for as long as we sell that product, we're going to be um, giving them a royalty and they're going to be continuing to, to um, gain a profit from that, from that piece of artwork. So um, it's absolutely a sustainable model. We're, we're one of the fastest growing native owned businesses in the country. Um, we're working with um, major brands this year to bring native art and design into people's homes. Um, and we're really excited about the future and we're excited about bringing that prosperity um, to our artists and letting them, you know, share that with their communities. And the other idea that, that we talked about as well is just artists uh, going directly to buyers and, and using platforms like eBay. And uh, earlier I might have made it sound like, oh, yeah, you just set up an eBay account and, and it's it's easy. But it, it's not really easy, right? I mean, you've got to focus on it. That takes time as well. It takes time away from when you're working on your artwork. And you've got to have that that savvy to know how to, to manage those websites and social media um, so what can be done to, uh, to help folks on that side of it? Well, I, I appreciate you pointing that out because it, it can be hard, you know, it can be hard to get out there and like know how to ship things out and know how to handle like bringing, you know, payments. And, um, I think that what Louis Gong did at Age Generation was really kind of give, um, a kind of a, uh, we're kind of almost in some ways like a co-op where we, we will, we will work with that artist and then we'll ship it and we will um, bring the payment in and we can, you know, issue them a check at the end of the year, issue that artist a check at the end of the year and they don't have to go through the hassle of that. Of, of that. But I, I also, I also really encourage um, anyone out there listening who is interested in pursuing art as a business that they should go for it. That even though there are, there are challenges like learning these systems are, can be challenging, they're not too difficult. And, and, and I know the brilliance of our Native artists out there, and they can absolutely find ways to, um, you know, bring their, bring their art into the, um, into the, into the community and, and really profit from it. But we, we absolutely have some of the most brilliant people in our communities, and I know that they are very capable to do it. Well, this has been a really thought-provoking conversation on protecting the value of Native artwork. I want to thank all of our guests today. And to our many listeners, please tune in again tomorrow as we take a look at some federal government language translation for Alaska Natives that missed the mark. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Close to half of American adults have high blood pressure. Of those, about 75% don't have it controlled. Chief Medical Officer at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, Dr. Luke John Day. Have your blood pressure measured yearly by a healthcare professional and regularly monitored at home. The American Heart Association has developed the Get Down With Your Blood Pressure campaign using music and dance. Learn more at heart.org slash hbpcontrol. They support this show.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.